Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Tell Me About Your Father. It's a new podcast about father figures, daddy issues, and dismantling the paternal mystique. Tune in today. And listen to the full first season, seven episodes in total. You're going to hear intimate interviews with a range of fascinating and influential people talking about their dads, the first guy they ever knew. Or maybe they didn't know him. Or maybe they wish they didn't know him. You know what I'm talking about. The show is created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Matthew Philp, and Elizabeth Thompson, all of whom are writers, all of whom have their own father stories to tell. Tell me about your father unpacks all facets of the father the loving the ambivalent the supportive the fiscally irresponsible the obscenely wealthy the dead the living the fathers who have built us up and the dads who have let us down the premiere season of tell me about your father seven episodes they're waiting for you on apple Podcasts, spotify and stitcher you can also find all of the episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com and additional content can be found on instagram at tellmeaboutyourfather also, don't forget, there's an anonymous hotline, 1-888-318-DADS, 1-888-318-DADS. You can call it, you can leave a message, you can tell a story about your father, and maybe they'll share it on Instagram, or leave your name and number, and maybe they'll ask you about your father. Tell me about your father. It's a new podcast. Go get it. Season one, available right now, all right? Okay. Hello. How you doing out there, everybody? Welcome to the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. This is uh, the 600 and what? 644th episode? Something like that of the Other People Program. My guest today is Chris Dennis. He has a story collection out on Soho Press. It is called Here Is What You Do. And I had a great time talking with Chris. He was at home in southern Illinois, in rural southern Illinois. I was here in my studio in Los Angeles, and we had a very interesting conversation. Chris 
has a very interesting life story. I'm not even gonna I'm not even gonna tease it. I'm just gonna let you sit with that for a moment. It's worth hearing. I had a I had a good time talking with him. I keep saying that, but you're you're about to find out why. Today's episode is brought to you by Rare Bird Books, publisher of The Good Family Fitzgerald, the new novel by Joseph DePrisco. The Good Family Fitzgerald is a saga of money and ambition, crime, and the Catholic Church. This is a sprawling, passionate story shaped against a background of social discord. The Good Family Fitzgerald depicts the lives of Irish and Italian Americans for whom the church is both an organizing principle and a corrupting force. The Good Family Fitzgerald by Joseph DePrisco, available now from Rare Bird Books. Go get it. So uh, if you will indulge me here for a minute, I keep meaning to remind people to register to vote. And especially if you're, you know, you're thinking about the voting in the fall and that, you know, you might want to vote by mail. Don't forget to uh, sign up for vote by mail, whatever your state, wherever you live, whatever the requirements are. Now is the time to get that figured out so that you get a mail-in ballot sent to your house. And so there aren't any problems. So register to vote. Get your mail-in ballot situation figured out. Go to your state, government, election, website, whatever it is. Google it and uh, get your mail-in voting situation taken care of, okay? My guest today is Chris Dennis. His story collection is called Here Is What You Do. It's available now from Soho Press. Uh, I think you're going to like this one. I'm just going to make that wager, all right? This is Chris Dennis. I mean, education did feel really unlikely to me. I was the first person in my family to go to college, and I had no idea what I was doing. But the longer I was there, really, I started to feel more at home probably than I ever had. Why? There was all, Well, there was just always this sense of loneliness, I guess, and it happens in a rural area, especially when you're queer. But... Also, that the things I was most curious about, um, they just weren't immediate, you know. I couldn't reach out and grab them. I had to go, I mean, search other places. I felt like I found my tribe in school. So let's let's start at the beginning with you. You're born in downstate Illinois. That's where you're from. Yep. So what town were you born in? I was born in Harrisburg, Illinois. Okay. I don't even know where that is. Like, I think most people probably would struggle it's, to... They probably don't know. Um, and I grew up in El Dorado, which is about 10 minutes away. The population there is maybe 4,000. Um, it's very south. So from my house right now, I can drive 30 minutes and be in Kentucky. And and like not only like like latitudinally south, but also culturally south. Absolutely, yes. It's the northernmost part of the south, yeah, right? No, I felt that way growing up in Indiana. But I think people uh, don't realize just how culturally Southern a lot of the state is or most of the state is. And so uh, what like, what do your what do your folks do? Like, what were they doing in, in El Dorado? Uh, my dad was a mechanic, and my mom was a housewife, mostly. Where, did you grow up in Southern Indiana? No, I grew up like right in the middle, like in suburban Indianapolis. But okay, even but still, e- even there, even there, it had strains that were familiar to me of like Southern culture, just because my parents are from Louisiana. So it wasn't merely like a like like a third part, like a third person kind of recognition of it. It was it was more it was more of a familial 
recognition. It was something I had some experience with, but it kind of took me by surprise because I had spent the first part of my youth in Milwaukee, like suburban Milwaukee, largely. And that is very much, at least at the time, was very much not at all Southern. <laughs> uh, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, Isn't it a weird thing to explain to people that like presence of the South, even in Illinois and Indiana, it always feels very strange to try and articulate that. Yeah, now, I, now boy, as you say that, I'm remembering uh, that I was reading something about the the reason why Indiana has this unusual cultural situation, despite its like northerly latitude or semi-northerly latitude, and it explained it all beautifully. And I'll be damned if I can remember where I read it, but it had something to do with like migratory patterns of certain immigrants and that's that's absolutely it most of this i think indiana is the same way as southern illinois is that it was settled by people from appalachia that's right okay it was like the scots irish or something like that or like yeah you know which i think explains the dialect here i've tried to wash mine out a little bit but uh, most of my family and, and people i'm close to that live here you can hear the South and the way they talk a little bit. Sure. Do people say like something like that? Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Get your picture made. <laughs> uh, all right. Which I still say. Yeah. I mean, you know, some of it you had like terms of endearment, right? Mm-hmm. So your dad's a mechanic. Your mom's a housewife. You're born in Southern Illinois. You're raised there and you're raised in a very religious household. Yeah, we went to the Gospel Assembly Church. There's several of them, like, all over the West and the South. But it's Pentecostal. It was really apocalyptic. It was terrifying. But also, you know, it was communal. There were people I loved there. Right. We talked in tongues. Okay, you did. You were speaking in tongues. And, like, how... Like, how... uh... I mean, when you're a kid, I don't think you have much choice. And if all the adults around you are confirming this as the thing to do, then it's pretty hard to resist it. Um, But I'm curious to know, like, how deeply into it you went and when you started to have reservations about it. We went there until I was 12, I think, maybe 13. And I think, uh, I mean, there were problems, the, the rigidness of it. Uh, became really uncomfortable even at like nine or ten and there were things going on i didn't know this i was a child obviously but there were things going on and i could sort of sense this tension in the congregation and part of what you do when you go to gospel assembly is travel to the other gospel assembly churches for conventions each year and so the the pastor really wanted people to um just stay close together and really insulate themselves with one another. But I could, I could hear the stress because, you know, I mean, there were dark things happening. Like what? Uh, like the pastor um, eventually was indicted for child molestation for hundreds of kids and embezzling money. And, and I think it's just this code of like, um, you know, religious rules were really um, inconsistent and people started to question things and people knew it was a cult, even if they felt uncomfortable thinking about that. And I think my parents definitely did. They knew. Yeah, I think they started to know. And that's the, the tension that I was picking up on even as a kid. 
Oh, it's interesting that you say that, and I don't want to get too deeply into politics, so I'm going to say that as a disclaimer before I get, okay. in, get into politics a little bit. But I was having a conversation recently with a friend of mine or a family member of mine um, about like MAGA. I think I was reacting to these like COVID-19 protests where p- people are like storming the Capitol with like military weapons and assault rifles and everything. It just seems crazy to me. Uh, and I can't help but sometimes compare these people to uh, cult members. It seems culty to me, though maybe you have a different view of it. And, I mean, you want to interject? Do you feel like there's something similar happening? I, it definitely feels so familiar to me. And the weird irony of it is that a lot of these people who are protesting feel to me like a lot of the people I grew up around who are also, like, in militias and, like— and gearing up for the apocalypse at all times. Like, this is the thing they've been preparing for, and now that it's in front of them, I'm so confused why they're not embracing it. It's very odd. <clears throat> Maybe right. this is their way of embracing it, actually, but yeah, it right? seems strange to me. This is everything you've ever wanted. It's happening, you know? Your, all your dreams are coming true now. <laughs> well, I guess the, the point that I was uh, getting at is that you know, you talk about these people in your Pentecostal church, including your parents, who had a sense that they were in a cult and that this thing was a con, basically. And I was talking uh, about how emotionally and like psychologically difficult it must be to come to grips with the fact that you have been conned in such a thorough way. Uh, like this is me trying to rationalize how people can hang on. You know what I'm saying? They can hang on so yeah. long, even in the face of like, you know, oodles and oodles of evidence that, you know, the guy that they've pinned all their hopes to is a complete uh, lunatic. It's really hard for people, I think, to admit to themselves. It's heartbreaking, I think. My grandparents, they stayed in the church a little bit longer than my parents did. And I think it was exactly that. They felt so afraid that that of the possibility, but also like there's trick built into it especially in our church where the narrative is that that the devil is trying to pull you away from god and so they're always falling back on that it seems like like could this could my understanding that something's off or that this is a cult also be a trick of satan yeah which feels like the most devious part of it really it's just like a mind fuck It took them a while. I think they're definitely heartbroken. But, you know, once they they did come out of it, they felt very good. I mean, like, you know, all their fears were validated and they wondered why they hadn't felt right for years. And and like, did they make distinct, like, did you notice a distinct change in the way that your family operated, parents and grandparents? Like, was there a yeah. dis- detectable shift? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, there was a dress code at church. And so that was sort of the first thing to go, which I think my family felt pretty liberated by. What, um, was, what was the code? Like you can't cut your hair and, you know, if you're a woman, you have to wear dresses at all times. I think my dad bought a motorcycle like two years after he left the church. Something he would have, wouldn't have done before, I don't think. <clears throat> what, motorcycles were forbidden? Well, it's just, you know, there was, even if things weren't, you know, spoken directly, I think that there was this idea of what you were supposed to be like and, yeah, riding a motorcycle satanic who knows but he felt you know he just they just let loose it seems like 
Well, I can imagine. And uh, I got to believe, too, in a town of 4,000 people that a Pentecostal church has got to have a pretty outsized influence on the, like the, the, the social machinery of the town, depending, I guess, depending on how many people are involved. But it seems like it was a community thing, right? Like how many people were involved with this church versus the overall population of El Dorado? I'd say hundreds for sure went to gospel assembly, but there's also a lot of churches in El Dorado. I mean, I think at one point I looked, there's maybe 16 churches in El Dorado and there's 4,000 people there, which seems really wild. So even if it wasn't just the Pentecostals, it was definitely a culture of Christianity. Did you have any siblings? Yes. Yeah. I have three. Well, like brothers, sisters? Uh, a brother and a sister, two sisters. Got it. Okay. And where do you fall in the pecking order? Right in the middle. All right. And so I'm supposed to ask you about Dolly Parton. Okay. How did Dolly Parton figure into your childhood? Um, let's see. My dad was in a country music band, so this was after the church. That was another one of the things to happen. I mean, he'd always loved music, but... I just wrote about this recently, but he bought me a, a Dolly Parton cassette maybe when I was in third grade, and I fell in love. As... I had, I'd heard it on the radio already, but and it's really hard now to sort of articulate why, you know, seven-year-old Chris was so mesmerized by Dolly Parton, but I really just, I mean, the songwriting is, is beautiful, but there's also just like the iconography of what Dolly Parton is. Really, it was exciting for a queer kid in the middle of nowhere. Now, when did you when did you start to know that you were queer? Did you have a sense of it at that age, or was it something that dawned on you later? I think so. I think I definitely had some sense of it, for sure. I mean, I have a son, so I went through periods, but even really young, I'm sure I, I, I felt something. And Dolly spoke to you. I could sense what I really loved, even. Yeah, absolutely, yes. She's. I, I feel like she's universally beloved. Like she's like she's like you know like Willie Nelson. I'm thinking of people, I guess, in the country music sphere. But there are mm -hmm. certain there are just certain people in the culture who everybody pretty much likes. Like even like people who disagree on just about everything can probably agree on the fact that they love Dolly Parton. <laughs> Absolutely. I don't think there's anyone who doesn't like her. She has this real, like, like empathetic nature at all times, it seems like. And she's beautiful, you know? Yeah, and she's so well-behaved. Like, when, is, when has she ever said a crossword or done anything controversial? She's always just kind of there with a smile and, like, her quick wit and, um, you know, some good cheer. That's, like, the, the function that she performs. Like, what a nice life. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's very deliberate on her part to stay in that space. It must be so hard, though, especially if people are getting hurt or, you know, something really uncomfortable is happening around you in the world. But she's done a very good job, I think, of of not making it personal. You know, I mean, she, she's outspoken about queer rights, I think. But even that is tame. Yeah, because she's got a pretty big... Uh audience um, uh, like a pretty big queer audience like that segment of her fan base is uh, huge for her and i've had conversations with gay friends of mine about this before 
about why certain musicians uh, resonate. I think Dolly Parton, you know, obviously comes to mind. Madonna comes to mind. Cher, like I'm trying to think of who else, but uh, is there something that you can point to, like that you feel like you were responding to? I mean, you mentioned the iconography and her beauty. Like, what is it? I've I've thought about this so much in terms of of gay icons like that, and it does seem very mysterious on a certain level. But I do also think that like the narrative of like a female being fully empowered and and just embracing that at every turn seems very attractive, maybe. Maybe it has to do with gender norms. I've thought about it a lot and I always kind of come up short, but I think it's very interesting. Yeah, me too. And so you uh you your family gets out of this Pentecostal church, your dad buys a motorcycle and starts playing music, he gets you a Dolly Parton cassette. Uh, from a religious standpoint, did you guys like drop the Christianity entirely or did you shift to like another, like a softer denomination? Yeah, I think they just softened up a little bit. I mean, both of my parents are still pretty faithful, but it really darkened, um, religion for them though, I think. And so they, they they definitely still read the Bible and those things are important to them, but it seems much looser interpretation now. I don't know how they navigate it. As someone who's mostly atheist, I, I find it very mysterious still. But I love that about them. I mean, I'm jealous of their faith a lot. Yeah, I can I can relate to that. You know, I feel like maybe in some ways life would be easier if I had a, like a simpler relationship or a more direct relationship with faith, like a less doubt or something. But uh, I, I can also convince myself that I'm enormously grateful to be of a discerning mind and to be able to live inside the doubt. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I do feel grateful for it. I feel like Christianity is so painful for most people and it really leads to some weird places for sure. But like, I miss church. I miss singing in church. I miss that like sense of fellowship. And I think that, uh, I, that's one of the things that I feel jealous of about my family they get to experience faith in that way as like a community of people who all believe in something and celebrate that. Just the idea of worship in general seems so exciting to me. I want something to worship, I guess. Yeah. I feel like we're all worshiping something, whether we know it or not. <laughs> That's true. You're right. That's absolutely true. And when you were growing up, you know, especially in this like post Pentecostal uh, period, which I guess was when you were 12, it's, it stopped. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. It was about 12. So what was adolescence like for you in this small town? Like, and can you describe a little bit in a little bit more detail, the milieu of El Dorado? Like what kind of industry is there? Was it a factory town Were people mostly farming? Uh, like what were you growing up seeing? Mostly it was a coal mining town. The, the Peabody coal company, um, employed the most amount of people in the county when I was growing up. I think that's still actually the case, even though most of the mines are closed. But there was a lot of that. And now, yeah, there's a lot of farms. I mean, you can't drive any direction out of town and not drive through um, soy or cornfields. It's definitely still a big industry. Now in El Dorado, there's, there's, there's one grocery store. There's a few gas stations. It seems much smaller than it was when I was growing up. 
Well, is it is it actually smaller, or does it just seem smaller because you're older? Well, I mean, a lot of the industry has died. There used to be, you know, a lot of shops downtown, and all those things are closed now. And what about animals? Did you grow up with animals and stuff like that? Uh, no, not really. I mean, we had a pet dog, but no farm animals. My grandpa had goats, but that was when I was pretty young. Okay, and so you, you're an adolescent, you're in this small town, and you, uh, like, are you alone among your siblings as having gotten off to college? You said you were the first person in your family to go to college, I believe. Yeah, yeah, my sister's a CNA, but um, no one else. What's a CNA? So, yeah. What's a CNA? Certified nurse's assistant. Oh, okay. And And so, talk about the decision to go off to school. Like, how did that happen, if there wasn't really any precedent for it? Um, so there's a community college nearby and that was, uh, I think maybe a teacher encouraged me to go I actually dropped out of high school a couple years early and went to college a little bit before I would have graduated because, um, maybe the librarian, I can't remember who it was at school encouraged me to do it. And it seemed like a great idea. I hated public school. I was miserable, but I, you know, I felt like. I definitely had seen somewhere, maybe among my friends or in books or TV, that if you didn't go to school, there was some other horrible life on the other side of it. So that was it was definitely my fantasy as a as a teenager to be educated and to get out of El Dorado. And to get out, yes. So you dropped out of high school when? Your sophomore year or your junior year? I was a junior, yeah. And were, did you have friends? Did you have like a social existence as, as a teen or were you pretty isolated? No, I had friends for sure. I had some friends and um, they stayed in school, you know, and I, I was still close by so I could see them a lot. And you went off to community college. And I went off to community college and I think I stayed there for a few years. I had a son and then I went to Carbondale, which is just about an hour from here for the rest of my undergrad. So wait, you had a son? How old were you? I was 19. Wow. Okay. So you were just a kid when you had a kid. Just a baby. Yeah. And what, talk about that. Like, were you, was, was this planned or was this uh, something unplanned? No, it wasn't planned. It was terrifying until it happened. And then, you know, then it was perfect. Yeah. Right. We had no idea what we were doing, which I'm grateful for now in a lot of ways. Well, there's never a good time to have a kid. No, you're right. Right? I mean, I, I don't think anybody's ever really prepared. And the timing and the you know the financial stuff or all the things that parents like to think about and try to game plan for, it's never lined up perfectly. So, You just have to fall into the fear. That's right. And by the way, it is a, I, like I often joke, it is a permanent state of fear. Like, it, it, it never ends. You have kids? That, yeah, I have two. And like, yeah. one, like once they're born, once the first one was born, <laughs> that was it. Whatever life I had previously lived, which I guess comes with its own kind of existential permanent fear that's like uh, endemic to all of humanity is uh, you, you get like an extra level. I feel like when you're a parent, you just live in this state of like mortal fear at all times that something's going to happen to them. <laughs> it's or so true. It's really nice to hear other people say that it never ends. It's it's like this fear about them and also this fear about like what sort of person you are to them at all times. <clears throat> like am I being my best self and you never are, it's impossible. 
but the longing for it just ramps up more when you have children, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, I feel like most times parents get together, they talk about, um, like, fatigue or more mundane <laughs> discomforts. You know, it's like, oh, God, this is a hassle, or this teacher is no good, and I wish my kid was in this class, or whatever it is. And then uh, at a deeper level, though, I think most of us are terrified not only that something could happen to our kids, like that basic like protective parental thing, but also just like, am I doing this right? And, uh, God, I feel overwhelmed. And do my kids, are they going to like me <laughs> when this yeah. is all over? <laughs> <laughs> I have, that's like my biggest insecurity. Please love me. Please enjoy being around me all the time. Yeah. Which right? is, I mean, that's, it's so unrealistic, but it's also this like constant worry about their possible suffering at any given moment even just out in the world and like am i being the best person to like help them cope with suffering i live in fear of these questions that i'm not going to be able to answer uh that's kind of the mode that i'm in now you go through different phases as a parent but like i've been talking a little bit about this with guests of mine or with friends of mine where i'm i'm like researching online which is very much not like me when it comes to parenthood i don't like read books on how to be a dad and yeah, I don't like to engage with it at that level. It makes me <laughs> feel crazy. But I am like starting to imagine adolescence, and you know, my son has some disabilities, and that adds like a layer of uh, like a difficulty. I feel like it ratchets up the difficulty in terms of the kind of an the kinds of answers that I feel like I'm going to have to be prepared to give. And I, I sort of want to have a script. Like I see myself having like little note cards in my pocket. <laughs> so like when the, the big questions come down, I can give like a semi-coherent answer. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I guess like I couple that desire with also the desire to not overdo it. I feel like sometimes you can fuck things up, you know, even when you're operating from a sense of goodwill, just by over-talking or micromanaging things that should, you know, be Absolutely. Better, be better left alone. So I'm trying to err on the side of sort of being hands off, but not so hands off that it turns into negligence. <laughs> that was most of my approach. I think my son's 20 now or about to be. And my my biggest sense most days was to step back a little bit because I thought, you know, I mean, you can tell when you're you're doing too much. They really will just turn away from you. <clears throat> It seems like when you're trying too hard, which, you know, happens, but yeah, especially on, I don't know, bigger stuff. Uh, I was like, when you're trying to teach your kid about something important and you can just feel them resisting you because they're just kids and they want to kind of <laughs> do it their own way. Oh. Yeah. I'm just like, you know what, Brad, you just got to stop, just step away and like, let somebody else do it so that it actually sticks and they don't like rejected out of hand because of some like psychological reflex, you know, the way that kids do when their parents try to force, yeah. force feed them something. Don't you like immediately recall all the times that, you, that as a child, you were in those same positions sure. where you just wanted to run the other direction. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, it's like <laughs> my, most of my, most of my, uh, adolescence or a lot of it anyway. And I have, you know, I have yeah. wonderful, wonderful parents, <clears throat> but it's just, I think it's just a natural part of growing up and, I really do think that, especially with big stuff, maybe you have to let kids find their own way and you have to let them um, find it in a natural course of time. I think that, you know, if you have like, I have a nine-year-old and a four-year-old, um, 
you know, I'm not going to have an existential heart to heart with either of them, even if, like, yeah. <laughs> even if that's like maybe what I'm wired for. And, uh, yeah. and yeah. even if we get to an age and a place where it might be a better fit, I'm not sure if I'm the best person to have, or at least to lead that conversation, you know, in some kind of primary role. I sort of feel like it's better off sometimes to let kids sort it out on their own and you can kind of be there in a supporting role. That's such a good point. You're absolutely right. They'll find the right people to talk to sometimes about the things that come up. So what about, uh, let's get, let's get you back to school. You go to community college, you're there for a few years, you become a father Mm -hmm. and then you go off to what Carbondale. What does that even mean? Is that like a university of Illinois? It's yeah. Southern Illinois university. I went there because another teacher told me that I should. And so um, and I majored, I was a photography major at first, and then I took a creative writing class with a really good, my first creative writing class with a really good professor, Joey Flam Costello. And she was just so, like, she saw me, and we were reading the best things in there. It just lit me up. It changed my life, really. <clears throat> it sounds like teachers have had a big impact on your life. Absolutely. That's, that's very true. She was so good. She, she was just a really good listener. And and we were reading, I think we read some Richard Sykin in that class. It was before his book had come out. There was a poem in a Best American collection. And I'd never seen anything like it. It was from Crush. I think it was The Dislocated Room. Have you read Crush? No. Uh-uh. It's so good. It's, such, it's, it's poetry. It's such a good book. You should. It's very dark. There's Satan all through it, and 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 it's it's very queer. It really resonated with me. And so that was it. Like from that point forward, you, is that how you decided your major? Is that when you decided to start trying to write stuff of your own? Yep, absolutely. It was then. I wanted to try it out. I think. I mean, that reading that good work at you know eighteen, nineteen years old made me want to try to do it myself, I think, in the way that writing does. And what about, uh, like, coming out and, you know, like, your your sexual identity? Like, where did that, uh, or how did that play out? You have a kid. I'm assuming you're in a relationship with the child's uh, mother. Yeah. Well, I had been in a relationship with a guy before that, which she knew. So I didn't really have to come out exactly. I think I, I mean, I'd, people knew, people around, the people close to me knew. I think I waited a longer time to tell my parents, but they also sort of knew. Anyone who pays any attention to their gay child, I think, kind of has an idea usually. He really does like that Dolly Parton cassette, honey. Yeah. <laughs> He's listened to it like 10 times today. Um, <laughs> uh... Okay, so then you go from Carbondale to Washington at St. Louis. Is that right? Mm. Then I went to Florida for a couple years with a boyfriend, and then I applied to grad schools and didn't get in anywhere. And then the next year I applied again and got into WashU. And so you move up, you move up to St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And when, did the, when, did, when does the drug thing start? Does that happen in St. Louis, or does it happen after you finish grad school? After I finished grad school, yeah. When I moved back to Southern Illinois. 
and why did you move back to Southern Illinois? You you get your master's, you're working on a book, um, and then you leave school and you move home to teach. Is that right? Well, so I'm still working on the book, and this is probably 2011, 2012. So the economy is in a total wreck, and I was um, teaching a few different colleges. And all the positions stopped because enrollment was way down. And I really didn't know what else to do, so I just came home. And at first it seemed, you know, like it was a fine idea, but um, I felt very isolated when I first moved back. And, you know, I have some depression that I've always struggled with, but it just, like, swallowed me when I came home for some reason. And there's drugs everywhere here. It just seemed like... I mean, it happens a lot in, in small places. I mean, just uh, I mean, just look at the numbers. It's really depressing. But um, there were a lot of drugs, and I had an injury, and I started taking pain pills, and I just you know fell right into it. It was a very easy thing to do. Okay, so I have a question for you. If you mm-hmm. if you fell into opiate addiction pretty quickly. Did you have prior to this any inkling that you, you know, that you're wired uh, with an addictive personality? Like, were you drinking heavily? Were you able to smoke pot, like, and put it down and not have to constantly be high? Or do you know what I'm saying? Like, did any of these kind of tendencies uh, demonstrate themselves earlier? Or was this kind of a surprise to you to suddenly be, you know, eating opiates like Skittles? Um. When I was younger, I definitely experimented a lot with drugs, um, and I had taken opiates before for a little while, but stopped and had been sober for almost a decade. I, I rarely drank. I didn't really like to smoke pot. I mean, it was pretty abstinent in that regard, but I, I think I had an idea for sure. I mean, the whole I just drugs in general sort of made me anxious, and I think it was that, like, I could sense the possibility do you have family with uh, any kind of family history with addiction? No, not really. I don't. So you get this. Uh, you get this prescription. Why did you get the prescription again when you moved back home? Uh, I fell at work and cracked my tailbone. Okay, and so you get these opiates from your doctor. Mm-hmm. What was it, Vicodin? Yeah, Vicodin. And then that was it. You were off to the oh, race. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I'd been sort of miserable for a while. And then that happened, and I just felt so alive, you know. I just like I could, um, I could take a breath. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, like something that I, I want to say, you write uh, or you've written about either in the book or in one of the uh, pieces that you've published about how you didn't realize the scale of your depression until it was kind of removed from you through opiates. Which I don't know. It made like that simple description of it made the process of people falling into addiction make a lot of sense to me. You know, when people might be dealing with a, a really deep level of unhappiness and pain, um, you know, to the degree where it's it's kind of uh, never not there, and then yeah. and then suddenly you have uh, you know a, a Vicodin and you you are free you know you feel the weight lift or that the absence is uh is just very powerful it 
makes sense to me how that could be something that you would want to repeat or perpetuate. Yeah. I mean, it just, and I don't think I had quite understood how depressed I'd been until that. And it's like, I mean, opiates especially just have this uh, ability to annihilate all discomfort. I mean, that's the, the point of them, really. It's just a general sense of well-being. It's so addictive whenever you have felt, you know, terrible for a very long time. And do you know what you were depressed about? Was it something? No, I don't. It was just, you know, general depression, I think. <clears throat> I mean, it was severe. It was awful. But there, there was nothing I could point to. I think that was the that was the roughest part. So you go in a matter of how many weeks, months from somebody who cracked his tailbone at work to somebody who's got a pretty serious drug problem? Three months, four, maybe. It was no time at all. It was like the thing I had been waiting for and didn't realize it. Were you writing during this time? Yeah. I was almost done with the book at this time. I think I had most of the stories done. I already had an agent at this point. And then I maybe had one or two to finish. So I, I got it into him. We, we worked on it together. And as soon as he started to send it out to places and I was sort of, my hands were off of it, I just um, burned my life to the ground. Was there anxiety about uh, the possibility of the book being rejected or not finding a home? Because I know, like just from my own personal experience, that that's kind of the worst part almost. It's the worst, isn't it? Yes. I mean, I, I felt so... I had worked on the book for so long, maybe, you know, almost a decade before that. And so... And I just could not stop thinking about all the effort that had went into it. And it was all, you know, here at this moment, will someone want it? And also, was it even worth all of that? I mean, even if someone does publish it, just the, like, amount of time and effort is sort of insane, I mean, it's it's something an insane person does, I think, sometimes. Yeah, I, I, I have to agree with you. But I'm also capable of thinking of it in, like, almost reverential terms. I think that, like, having the, uh, the privilege of being able to spend that much time on an act of the imagination or um, in a process where you really have an opportunity to examine your inner life and... Um, find some, you know, build some meaning out of it. Like that, yeah. al that alone is its own form of reward. I mean, is, is that yeah. too, is that too rosy of a view? <laughs> no, I think, it, I mean, I do think it's a privilege. I mean, not everyone has that privilege, I think, to just imagine things all the time. And of course, a lot of people are writing and they're putting it in around the rest of their life, which, you know, may or may not be really stressful on its own. You're right. It is a privilege. That's absolutely true. At the time, that was very hard to think of it that way. Yeah, I mean, no, don't. I, I don't mean to sound like I've got this nailed down. I go, I have my moments. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I feel much different now. I feel so different about it now than I did then. So, the, so much was at stake at that moment. It seems like. Yeah, I mean, your future, and also, like you know, as a. Like to have when you spend that long on a project, if it doesn't find a home, then I can totally understand how emotionally it could feel like you've wasted an awful lot of time. You know the valid yeah. the, the validating part of it. You know, like okay, 
you know, you weren't completely crazy for wanting to do this. Look, you've written a book that somebody wants to print. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it kind of goes back to what you're saying about this idea of privilege. Like I had spent all this time fretting over a story or several stories and like, what was the point of all of that? It seems like a, a sort of, it's an odd thing to do, I guess. <clears throat> I think those things are connected. And plus I'd moved back home you know, I was working a little bit, like everything seemed like it was on the line. I thought, oh, if this book gets published, then I can get a teaching job or, you know, maybe I'll have enough money to leave here. Too many things were on the line. And so you just burned it down. Yep. Yep. So I just thought I'll just fall face first into the horribleness. And what happened? What, like, what does that look like? You just, you get, you, you continue to, uh, like fall deeper and deeper into opiate addiction. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just, um, I've stayed on pills for maybe a year. I tried to go to rehab for a little bit. As soon as I got out of rehab, I started using heroin and then meth. And then I just rehab worked for a little bit, but there it had, it was so uncomfortable afterwards. And I don't think I had the right tools or the right people around me that I just, uh, kept going. Okay. So how did, like, first of all, how did you get into rehab? Were there people around you who were like saying, Hey, listen. Yeah. My dad. Yeah. So he knew, he knew, he knew something was going on. Absolutely. And he helped make it all happen. So I could go to rehab and I, I went to methadone clinic first, which was good for a little bit, but also, I think it just um, it made things a lot worse in the long run. It was a, it's a very strange drug. There were days I didn't know if I was like awake or asleep. I really could not tell what was happening, and it kept me from you know being on the street and buying drugs and living this sort of weird life I'd been living as an addict, looking for drugs all the time. But um, I just never my brain was never sound afterwards. So it was very easy to just keep burning it down after that, I think. So where were you living when all that, were you living with your parents? I, I was living with a friend at first and then I went to a rehab in Indiana for a little bit and I stayed with friends. And then when I came back to Illinois, I think I stayed with some friends for a little bit, but after that I was homeless. So just moving around constantly. What, like couch surfing or sleeping outside? Both, yeah, both of those things. And you went, and like the the um, progression or the descent, I guess, is that you were describing, you know, it bears repeating just because I think it's it's the common way or it's oftentimes the way that these things go where you start with a prescription pill addiction and then as the pills might become scarce or difficult to get, you know, the opiate addiction doesn't go away and you wind up buying heroin on the streets. Yeah. Yeah. And that I was... mean, they're very, heroin's cheaper. It's much cheaper than prescription pain pills and often stronger. So, well, I was going to ask you because I've lost a friend, a uh, friend of mine, very dear friend of mine, um, accidental overdose on methadone, um, which, you know, I think has maybe a more benign, um, connotation because it's used to help treat heroin addicts, mm -hmm. uh, but it can be a deadly, 
drug. You know, it's not it's not like some kind of uh, it's not like you're popping an aspirin. Um, no, I mean it's 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 really dangerous, and of course, and you know, methadone is much stronger than a lot of other opiates, but longer acting, and I think that's why they use it obviously for treatment because you know a single dose could last for a few days. It's supposed to stabilize you, but the clinic I was at, I think this is often the case, they just keep upping the dose for maintenance, and you can never really get out of the cycle of that. Your you know, addicted brain is still doing the same exact thing it was doing before. So uh, did you ever overdose, or did you ever have any close calls or, or difficult experiences in that way? Because it's very dangerous what you were doing, and it's, uh, you know, it's a national disaster you know what has happened in this country with opiates which i think take more lives nowadays than like car accidents or something like that yeah yeah you know? it does and so yeah. uh, and then you talk then you factor in uh fentanyl which you know what is it like a you know the, the very smallest amount uh can be fatal like a, like an unbelievably tiny amount of fentanyl which is often cut into i think the heroin that people buy on the streets um, you know, just, just as an example, like makes things very risky. Like how were you able to avoid, you know, calamity? I mean, I definitely took too much several times uh, and a friend had to call 911 once, but I think I, I transitioned to methamphetamines after a while because there, there's so much of it around here and maybe, you know, I think that, that, curbed my opiate use probably and kept me from you know descending to amounts that would were fatal i just changed drugs i was going to say like meth i don't know if meth is a step up <laughs> no i it's it's awful it was awful and it's very weird that it, you know i mean they seem so very different but like it's still um, hitting the same button in a lot of ways i guess i yeah. mean i've been sober for a year and a half now so it's still all kind of close. Yeah. Well, congrats on the sobriety. Um, you. you know, it's not easy to get sober um, no matter what it is that you're struggling with. But I think opiates and meth are right up there in terms of presenting a pretty difficult challenge. So kudos to you. And like, thank God, you know, because they're they're really not good for you. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, so how did you get sober? Like if rehab didn't take and the methadone clinic wasn't the right fit for you, what was it that finally turned things around? Mm, the, well, I, I was arrested for the third time, I think. And I had been, I'd been to jail a few times and, and for months at a time, but um, there was something so bleak about the last um, uh, stint in jail that I really... I don't know. It's still something I have to think about. It feels very mysterious to me in some ways why I was able to stay sober this time. But And it's still so close, you know, so it's hard to have a lot of um, perspective about it yet, <clears throat> about why this particular instance worked. So how long were you in jail? Uh, almost seven months the last time. And what happened to get you there? Uh, I was arrested for possession. I was shooting up in a gas station bathroom, and the attendant called the police. And what, the police barge in when you're in there? Yeah, they waited for me to come out. 
they were just waiting there at the door for me to come out of the, the gas station. So you're shooting meth? Yep. Damn. Who knows? Who knows what was going on? Yeah. It's so bizarre to think about now when I think back on all the strange decisions I was making. You're in such a frenzy, and there's only a tiny part of your brain working, I think. That's how it feels to me now that I could keep doing that every day. So you get arrested. This is the third time you've been arrested. I'll assume that the first two were similar. You were arrested for possession? Yep. Yeah. And so then with the third strike, you're incarcerated. And uh, like, like once you were arrested that third time, have you been sober since that day? Yeah, I've been sober since then. Okay. So then you go into prison expecting to be there how long? I wasn't sure because I, I, I'd just been charged with all these things, several charges. And then I didn't know what the sentence was going to be. They were suggesting things, but um, some of my charges still haven't been resolved. So I just keep, I went to treatment after jail and I'm sort of waiting to see the impact that that will have on the sentencing. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So uh, was treatment a condition of your release or something? Like, did you have to? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so what what does treatment mean? Does that mean inpatient, like rehab? No, I went to outpatient treatment. Okay. So I just, I was just going every day. And what about being in jail? Uh, Like I've had joking exchanges with writers on this program over the years about how jail would be such a great place to get some writing done. (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) No, no. It was the fucking worst. What jail were you in? I was in the county jail um, in Sling County. And there you're in the cell 24 hours a day. So, I mean, you can go to rec on weekends or something and to the library once a week, which is like 20 books. I was in such a panic, just like, frozen out of just sheer anxiety about it. I wrote some letters, but that was about it. I read a lot. Were people visiting you and bringing you books and stuff? They would mail me books. Yeah, my friends and family would mail me books. And so did you have a roommate? Uh, Yeah, there are five people in the same cell. It's pretty packed. It's really packed there at all times. And does it just like that one like stainless steel toilet in the room? Like like right down? And you have to like poop, poop in front of people? Exactly. Such a nightmare. (laughs) And like, so what do you do? You just close your eyes when someone's go like, okay, I guess this is happening. Usually other people. So there's like a sleeping cell that you can go into and everyone will just go in there and wait for you out of politeness. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Isn't that sweet? Look at that jail etiquette. Uh huh. Damn. That's a, that's an intense loss of privacy. It was very strange, yeah. Did you get along with your cellmates? Yeah, for the most part, um, it was fine. And that made, you know, it was that weird, like, I mean, you're isolated, but there is no privacy. And when I write, usually, I feel like I can't even, if I hear anybody else talk, it, it sort of breaks me. So there was no way. And it's very loud in there. People are yelling all the time. Were there fights? Oh, constantly, yeah. In your cell? Yeah, absolutely. Were you involved? People are always fighting. Uh, no, not anything physical. 
lots of arguments with people, but there's this like just constant sense of stress for everyone. I mean, you're like a rat in a cage. And so there's always fights over the dumbest things, you know. It's really hard to to like articulate that like stress level. All of your hormone levels are up. <clears throat> and like just I, f- five people packed into a cell. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely. It's so overcrowded. I mean, most jails and prisons are overcrowded. Were most of the people in there in there for drug offenses? I'd say 90%, yeah. Damn. Nonviolent drug offenses? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everyone in my cell was an addict. The people across from me were addicts. I mean, it's a like a, a housing for addicts, basically. Are people using in there? Like, do they find ways to smuggle things in or get drugs? A- absolutely, yeah. All the time. So how does that even go down? Like, people <laughs> mail them shit? Or do, like, cops give that? Like, do prison guards give them stuff? Or, like... Sometimes officers, correctional officers do. More often, though, when someone is arrested and they come in, they have drugs on them somewhere. Like, what does that mean? Like, up their ass? Yeah, they just hide it up their butt or, like, under their feet or in their hair. But don't they, don't they, like, when they bring you in, don't they strip you down and, like, check you? They do, but, you know, nobody wants to put their finger up your butt, I guess, so. God. Yeah, okay. All right. Well, that that's a life changer. Did, like, what was <laughs> what was happening with your book when all this was going down? Um, right before this happened, my agent had called to tell me that um, a publisher wanted it. <laughs> so, <laughs> just like added to all of the panic of that. So, I edited parts of the book while I was in jail. Um, it didn't come out until I'd been out of jail couple months when the book came out but all of that you know leading up to process i was incarcerated did you get a tattoo in jail uh no no i didn't okay. <clears throat> yeah except don't they isn't that something people do you get a prison tattoo. lots of people lots of people did um here i never saw anyone with a good tattoo so it wasn't something i considered <laughs> but some people some people had tattoos in there that were beautiful that they'd had done in prison like is that allowed? Like where do you where do you get the inexplicably, ink? Inexplicably, it's not allowed. No, the people in my cell would um, they would tear up their shoes, which are made of this sort of foam material, and then they would burn that, and turn it into soot, which they would then mix with Vaseline, and that was the ink that they used. Damn. And then what about uh? So smoke? industrious. Yeah, I was gonna. People find a way, right? You're so fucking Absolutely. bored. Against what, all odds. What uh? What about smoking? Could you smoke in prison? No. Could you chew tobacco? Um, I mean, all that stuff would be considered contraband, but people would have cigarettes or tobacco. I don't know how they got those things, but they did pretty regularly. And smoke it right Probably. there in the cell. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Holy. And shit. hope a guard doesn't come by. <clears throat> right. So okay, so you're in there for seven months. Mm-hmm. And then how do you find out you're getting out? Was it expected or did you get like a early release or for good behavior or anything like that? No. So I was, I was being held on bond at the time and it was like really high at first, but some of my charges changed while I was in there and it went down. And so my family bonded me out. 
And how were they, you know, with you? Like, uh, what was their reaction to your descent and then your ultimate uh, incarceration? Like, once you got to this point, it sounds like they've been supportive or as supportive as a family can be. But it's tough on their end, you know, to watch somebody they love uh, spiral into this kind of thing because... At this point, they were horrified. I mean, they didn't know what to do. They sort of looked away once I ended up in jail for this long period. I think they were hoping that it would be the thing that saved my life. And did your cellmates know that you were a published author? Um, yeah, I think a couple of them did. Yeah. Are you like reading them excerpts from your book? And <laughs> No, but I did have to have a few conversations with my agent and the publisher on the phone while I was in there. And I did some edits over the phone. So they heard those conversations. And what are your agent and your publisher thinking about this? Like, I guess you're pretty transparent with them about what was going on in your life. I just told them what was going on. Yeah, I, I didn't know what else to do. And what was they their... were so, so supportive. They're both fucking amazing. They were really great. So who's your agent and who's your publisher? Uh, PJ Mark is my agent. And I'm at Soho Press with Mark Doton. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, when it comes to addiction... Uh, they were very understanding, yeah, I think. Uh, you would hope, you know. I think, uh, obviously, there can be, there's such a thing as, like, burning bridges and causing personal pain as an outgrowth of your addiction. But, yeah. you know, I think about my friend uh, who lost his life. And, like, I, 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 I often hear people talk about it, like, feeling angry, you know, toward people in similar situations. I've never really felt anger. Yeah, you know, maybe my, maybe anger at like addiction, like in, like broadly, abstractly, maybe anger at like the substances themselves or something, but like never like a personal animus, you know. Yeah, my family was pretty angry at me, and it made sense. I mean, I just had kept repeating um, to worser effect the same mistakes, and I think that was very mysterious to them, and they felt like it was. Like it was so confusing and frustrating that that ultimately turns to anger a little bit, but it is hard to see. I mean, I have friends and family even now who are who are still active addicts, and and of course I have this deep sense of empathy about it, but it, it is also like it feels so familiar to me, and I can see them just cycling through it over and over, and it's anger, but it's definitely. Um, feels so frustrating you just can't reach them no matter how hard you try they're right there and you just can't yeah no that 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 makes sense i think maybe by the time i found out any of this was happening it was already too late but if you're dealing with somebody who's alive and actively struggling the bitch of it is that there's nothing you can really do like the person can only get sober when they're ready to do it like you might be able to encourage it but if i think if you scream and shout and stage an intervention and try to do all these different things it isn't likely to take unless the person's ready, no. to, ready to stop. Intervention is, I think, almost always just the worst strategy. I see this, the sort of logic, the frail logic behind it, but, you know, rarely does it work. I think part of um, being sober now, this frustration I have about not completely understanding why it was possible this time is it's part of that frustration of seeing someone who's addicted and not and feeling so helpless and not knowing what to do because what is the thing it's so hard to 
to see exactly what that would be. What about your post-jail treatment situation and therapeutic um, methodology? Like, what is it that has been able to help you sustain sobriety? You've obviously probably had to ask yourself some questions and dig around in there and, like, figure out what happened. Uh, can you talk a little bit about recovery? And, uh, you know, it's obviously ongoing, but, like, where are you now? And, like, what kind of tools and what kind of people do you have around you that are helping you? Um, so I'm staying with um, my friend's mothers, and they're amazing and so supportive. And I, I go to treatment every week, and I go to group therapy. I, th I think it really it's having these people around me who are always, like, um, rooting for me to, to stay sober, but also... I feel very connected in a, to people in a way that I did not before. Even before I started using, I felt very disconnected from even the people closest to me. And there's certainly something about that sense of connection that's helped me stay sober. Why did you feel disconnected before? I mean, you, you were returning to your home turf and you had lots of family around. Mm. What was well, it? Well, I just, I just left St. Louis and I had only been out of grad school for a little bit and the people there were so wonderful I feel like I I really f found my people when I was in grad school and it was definitely grieving that connection when I moved back because all my friends had left southern Illinois like there were very few people here that I knew so I was kind of coming back to a new place yeah that makes sense I feel like loneliness might be at the core of just about everything that ails humanity yeah. and American humanity in particular. Like, I don't think when you talk about like family disbursement, you know, the way that families are now scattered geographically all over the country or all over the world. You talk about friends graduating high school or graduating college and heading off in a, you know, a zillion different directions. It's hard to build community and it's hard to feel a sense of social connectivity at the level that I think biologically homo sapiens are wired to experience it you know like we uh historically we're dealing in like tribes of what like several dozen people or several hundred yeah. people even and, and like i think that's kind of what it's kind of what we're wired for and yet a lot of us are living these lives i guess it can happen in rural areas as well as urban areas where you feel a sense of dislocation or isolation um, either because you live in the middle of nowhere and there's not that many people around in your peer group, or you live in some like urban, uh, like super clustered environment where there's this kind of like paradoxical lack, you know, like water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink, yes, um, yeah. you know, but I think like, I don't know. I think that that is working on a lot of us, if not all of us in ways that we might not even necessarily fully comprehend. And it, is striking to me that you would tie the fact that you've been able to stay sober for the past year and a half and that you've been able to find some success with it, uh, to this notion of living with people who are rooting for your sobriety and to this notion of having kind of some deeper social connections and a sense of, um, like having a direct line to people, you know, that's, yeah. so, that's so important. 
It's absolutely those connections that have made all the difference. And, you know, it takes such a long time, at least for me, I think this is the same for a lot of people, to find the people that you can connect with really deeply. Like those relationships develop sort of slowly. And that I had abandoned all that after leaving St. Louis and came here, it was really, I mourned it, even without totally realizing that's what was happening. But to to build those kind of friendships again, it takes a while. And I think I just let it, it it just ate me up, you know, the sense of loneliness. So what about your son? Like where, where does he factor into all of this in terms of uh, geography and proximity when you were, especially when you were struggling um, with substance, like, was there any connection or contact with him? And, And how did that relationship endure all that you've been through? Uh, I mean, I was really, you know, connected to him still at first when I first started using. But once I went off the deep end, his mother definitely recognized that something bad was happening with me. And there were long stretches where I didn't get to see him. He, They still live here in the same town. So he's very nearby, but I was such a mess, you know. There were long periods where I didn't get to see him. And so when you talk about your family recognizing that something was wrong, um, like you were trying to socialize with them, you were trying to communicate with them, but you were just fucked up and they knew it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, how did it manifest? How did it manifest so that people got a sense that you were not doing well? When I called and asked for money, probably, I mean, they wouldn't (laughs) hear from me for a long time. And then I would be like, you know, Oh, this, something's happened. I really need $200 or $20 or whatever it was. They could, you know, that was, that was it. And then I would try to get sober or they'd reach out to me and I would go stay for a couple days and try to, you know, not use, but it never really worked. And they were baffled by it too. You know, I don't think they'd really seen it like this before. And they were so confused. And there was this occasional, like, just stop, you know, don't do that anymore, which is, you know, human. I, I can see why they felt that way, but of course it doesn't work like that. Right. If only it were so simple. Yeah. So, uh, you wrote a kind of predictive story, like in your book, like you sort of foretold your own situation a little bit long before, yeah. long before it went down. I find Such a that, nightmare. I mean, yeah, but also <laughs> like interesting. And I think also not surprising as somebody who's, uh, written or tried to write for a long time. Like when you're doing this kind of like deep work, I think it's actually fairly common to be predictive in the work or to see things in the work that, um, might take on like larger meaning after the fact, or, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, absolutely. Other people have said this same thing to me about, about their own work. When we talked about the story for my book, I think it is pretty common. You're right. I mean, we sort of seek out the weak points in ourselves sometimes when we're writing. I mean, that's the sort of vulnerable, uncomfortable stuff that ends up in our work, I think. So you fore- you foretold, just for people listening who might not have had the opportunity to read, like you basically foretold your struggle with substance. Absolutely, yeah, and incarceration. I, I mean, it was like a decade earlier, and you know, most of what I wrote in the story ended up happening. And I was probably riding into a fear. I'm sure that had a lot to do with it. And I'd been around incarceration and substance abuse. How so? Um, I have a brother-in-law and an older brother who were in prison and other family members. 
<clears throat> for substance abuse? Um, not for for other things. Other things, okay. Yeah, yeah. But it was just present around me, I think. So there was a little bit of that, and then also just like, what's the thing I'm most terrified of? I should write about that. <clears throat> not that I consciously set out to do that, but you know, it's sort of the thing that happens sometimes. Do you ever blame the story? You're like, you know what? If I hadn't written this fucking story. <laughs> there were so many times in jail, especially because the book was about to come out and it's the title story that I thought, what have I fucking done? Like it just felt, and I was still in like a weird state of mind. So I wasn't thinking clearly, what about, but I felt very angry about it. Absolutely. And what about like the emotional, the emotional terrain? And I don't mean to be, uh, you know, jokey in an unkind way. I, I'm sincerely curious. Like when you're in prison, and especially when you're in uh, a social context that's confining, as being in a cell with five dudes or with four other dudes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I'm imagining myself in that scenario, especially in those early days. Like you know, the first couple nights in jail, um, where like the reality of your situation is hitting you. Like you can't exactly like break down crying in front of all your cellmates. No, no, you can't. I slept for about three weeks for the most part when I first got there. Of course, I had been, you know, I'd been high and using for a long time before that. So just to go in there and sleep for a while felt good. But then you get to know people and, you know, even though there's this posturing going on all the time in jail, people start to let that down. And everyone is in such a vulnerable space even though they're trying to act like they're not, it comes out. I mean, I think I, I definitely opened up to um, some cellmates only after they had done it first, of course. <laughs> do you guys ever like sing or anything? Like, do you ever get like musical in there or like, is there anything? No, we didn't. That's no, unfortunately. Do you have friends from prison that you keep in touch with? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Absolutely. Some, a lot of them, I think, I mean, a lot of them are addicts. And so it's weird feeling around that. And so I have to be careful, but I definitely um, made a couple friends in there, I would say. And and you talked a little bit about sleeping for three weeks and, and that being part of the adjustment, um, you know, coming down off of pretty intense methamphetamine use. Like what was the longest stretch you went without sleeping? Cause that's, that's the whole thing. That's the whole project with meth, right? I mean, it's... Too- yeah, yeah. I mean, that's never... I mean, I'm not... It's such a weird thing. And, of course, the longer you're awake, the less rational you are. And so it's like, has it been five days or has it been seven days? You're never quite sure how long it's been. So maybe... I don't... You know, I don't know. Maybe a week. <clears throat> Damn. At some point, you can't do enough drugs to stay awake. So then you just fall asleep wherever you are. And sleep for like, what, like 48 hours? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Damn, that, that can't be healthy. It was terrible. It was so strange. And then when you wake up, you're still like, you're so disassociated from yourself at all times. I feel like that's part of this like puzzle of getting sober is that your brain is so tilted during all of this that like it's very hard to be rational enough to find a way out of it. So when you got arrested in that gas station – that's the last time you used the cops yeah. take you directly from the gas station to jail. Yeah. Bond is expensive because it's your third arrest. 
Mm-hmm. Nobody posts the bond, so there you are in county jail. Yeah. And you have gone from um, opiates to meth. I mean, like you've got a lot of you've got a lot of stuff in your system and a lot of uh, a lot to withdraw from, right? Did you have like a withdrawal process that was painful? It was, and I I wasn't using a lot of opiates um, before I went to jail, which are the worst withdrawals. But I definitely felt pretty terrible for a couple months. Just cleaning out. And did you go to the rec on the yeah. weekends? Were, were you getting like, like everybody gets ripped up in the gym. Like, did you get like big, big... <laughs> No, I never did that. There's no weights or anything at rec. It's just this like open cell with, it's like a cell with no ceiling on it. I never went. Everyone always fought at rec. And so that made me really nervous. So I never went. So wait, if there's no weights, what is there? What are people playing like tetherball? You just, there's a, um, I think there's a basketball. That's it. Is there a hoop? There's a hoop, yeah. Oh, okay. I was gonna. That's yeah. a, I was gonna. This is the saddest wreck ever. It's just like a. It's a. <laughs> there's, sad... there's a basketball and nothing else. That's it. No wonder there's they're. A, there's a bird, a dead bird that everyone plays with. I was gonna say, no wonder they're fighting. They got nothing to do. <laughs> so no prison tattoo, and you didn't get like you know like jacked up on like uh, steroid on the human growth hormone or anything. None of it. No, I gained like fifty pounds just from eating starch every day. Yeah. What did they feed you? <clears throat> um garbage such garbage it seems like a real that's like an additional crime to being incarcerated rice um that some weird meat-like substance lots of beans all right well i mean it seems simple beans seem yeah, healthy it was, but no. yeah it was, it was pretty simple uh, and then what about the day you get out? Like, I've got to imagine that has got to be the best fucking feeling ever is when they like walk you out and you're like a free man or a semi free man. Like what, what did that look like for you? Did you like walk outside and like kiss the ground or? <laughs> no, I'm, it's really weird because I mean, every day I was thinking, oh, maybe, you know, next week or the week after this. And so there was just this real sense of anxiety built up around it. When it finally happened, I was just vibrating with anxiety for like two months afterwards. I didn't feel any better. I mean, I was, I felt better that I wasn't locked in a room, but my body just couldn't let it go, I think. <clears throat> I expected to feel wonderful, but it's like, you know, like your body's still holding on to all the stress hormones or something. It was, it was, it took a while to adjust. So who picked I, you up? My son came and picked me up. Oh wow! Okay, so you get to see him. Yeah, and takes yeah. You, so I got to see him. Takes you where? Where do they? Where does he take you? To my grandmother's house. And you just where, had... where I stayed for a few days, and then I got into. I started going to treatment, and then I came here where I'm at now to live with my my friends. And. Uh... Was there, and you said, you said earlier, you're kind of an atheist. A lot of times I feel like when people get sober after a really difficult run with substance, they'll find some sort of spiritual architecture, you know, that helps them navigate or gives them, um, I don't know, like something to help sustain, uh, or they have some kind of, yeah. like, you know, genuine, I don't know, uh, epiphany or moment of awakening. It doesn't sound like you had anything religious or spiritual. No, it is very common, isn't it? It's like the... The thing that people cling to. It makes sense, I guess. Um, I've been read. This is the closest it gets. I've been reading a lot of Brene Brown. She's like the 
you know, behavioral scientist, social worker. Yeah, have no. you heard of her? Uh, yeah, my, you know my, what I'm talking about? My, my sister, my older sister loves her. She's just like, yeah. she's sassy. She's like, she... to the point. <laughs> <laughs> she is sassy. But, I mean, there's a lot of research and evidence in it. It's very comforting. So I've been reading that. I try not to fall too deep into it because it's still – there's definitely a sort of self-helpy, like, prescriptiveness to it. But No, man. I it helps. You're talking, to comforting. Some, you're talking to somebody who's read a lot of self-help books, like an incredible – Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've listened to a Brene mm. – I've listened to Brene Brown be interviewed, I think, on the uh... – what was it? Maybe it was WTF, some podcast, you know. Okay, uh, yeah. Song. She's great in interviews. She's so good at it. Yeah, no, she's like, she's she's sharp, you know. And I think um, when you have a tall order, which I guess all of us pretty much have, but especially, you know, when you're in a kind of a crucible or like one of those moments or transitional periods in your life where there's a lot on the line, you're dealing with a lot of stress and difficulty and suffering, like how else are you going to do it without some help? I, I yeah. you know, and especially like it sounds like you're reading Brene Brown. It's not like you have yeah. her on the phone, you know, like you <laughs> you're turning to books like that. It's makes true. That feels relatable to me. I think you've got to find some way to like map this stuff and, you know, whatever works. Right. As long as it's not yeah. hurting, hurting you or hurting other people. And my friends, I think they're so good at loving me. It's really it makes all the difference. Are they sober? Or are, they, are these people who themselves are sober? Yes. These are most of the people I was friends with before I burned my life to the ground who were just kind of, I mean, who tried to help. And now that I'm clean again, I definitely, um, we're having our relationships again. That's awesome. And what mm -hmm. about, what about the publication of your book? Like, forgive me if I have the timeline, um, mistaken, but it was like you sold it right before you went into prison and yeah, you were editing it in fits and starts while you were in prison, mm -hmm. uh, retiring to your uh, your garret <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> in, in uh -huh. the uh, in the library in the prison in the vast prison <laughs> library. Uh, and then what uh, what happened around publication? When did that happen? Were you still inside when that happened, or did it happen after you got out? I was out, uh, I think, two months or a month and a half um, when the book came out. So I had a little bit of time out of jail before it happened. I got to believe that that's, an, I mean, that's definitely an unusual set of circumstances for somebody coming out of prison to celebrate the publication of a book. It was very <laughs> strange. And I'm sure that that was partly what helped me to stay sober. Like I was, I felt very lucky that I had this little piece of hope on the other side. And it felt really strange because I had made it long before all of this. And that it was like waiting for me after I had wrecked my life to, to give me something to feel good about was such a gift. Well, and it's also like evidence of the old you. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, like, look, absolutely. I'm, I had yeah. my I had my shit together enough to write a book like that. takes yeah. a, That's a sustained act of uh, clarity or, you know, some version of clarity anyway. So. I get it. And then having it be kind of a life raft or some sort of uh, like something emblematic of hope and. Something, yeah. something positive in your life to focus on other than like, oh, fuck, now I'm at my, gra <laughs> I'm at my grandma's house. Yeah. What am I going to do? Yes. Got to do all this hard work of like rebuilding relationships and like finding a way to support myself. And Yeah, I definitely think it made such a big difference that there was this encouraging thing that I had made that was, 
you're right. There was like a this token from my my better self. Did you go on book tour? Um, no. So I'm I'm on probation still, and so I couldn't leave the state at first. And then um, I actually did come to L.A. Um, in January to read a couple places. And then I went to Louisville once. Um, I started the book tour maybe December, January, uh, a little bit late. And then, of course, um, global pandemic. So this is my book tour. This is it. Yeah, this is it right now. <laughs> it's, very, it's very glamorous, isn't it? <laughs> it feels great. There's so <laughs> many people around me. I feel celebrated. <clears throat> uh, did the like the reality of publishing a book match up with the fantasy? Like when you think back on your graduate school days or on those early days in Carbondale when you were first like wrapping your mind around the fact that you wanted to write and that literature was your thing. Like when you finally get there, especially after all that you've been through, I have to believe there was some sense of anticlimax or like maybe like a more measured, like emotional response. It was very strange. One of my friends before the book came out, she was like, prepare yourself for the, the quiet before the quiet, which is exactly what it felt like. Like the book happened. And then I was like, you know, all right, here it is. And then, yeah, it felt very anticlimactic. I didn't know what to expect, but it's such a strange thing. I tried to start writing again as soon as I could because there's such a weird anxiety around it. After the book comes out, you're like waiting to be like to arrive. And that's not really how it works, I don't think. I feel like you've got an excellent prison novel in you. It's coming. It's going to be called The, <laughs> the, the Sleeping Cell. What's it going to be called? <laughs> I think I already wrote it. Oh yeah, that's right. You, you... it's a story. Yeah. Um, I've tried to write about it a little bit, but it's. It, I don't. Maybe I'm not ready yet. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think you got to take some time, some t to, sometimes to uh, get perspective. Yeah, I definitely do. And like, I think too, it's nice to imagine that you can just go from one project to the next. That you can just uh, you know seamlessly transition and never stop working and just be yeah you know, a relentlessly productive machine. But uh -huh. <laughs> I think the more common situation is that there has to be some time for rejuvenation and intake. And maybe, I mean, I'm, I'm talking to myself as much as I'm talking to you, uh, because I think you can get into the situation where you're trying to force the issue because you feel like this is what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. And I can sometimes feel like I'm being indulgent if I'm like just reading too much and not actually writing or attempting to write something. But um, and, th and then there's just the issue of just plain old sloth. Like sometimes you just need to be lazy and let yourself rejuvenate. Yeah. There's so much guilt around that. It's when, when you're, when you're a writer or when you're someone who's supposed to just, you know, work on your own, I feel, um, very bad about those downtimes, but you're right. Sometimes you just have to give into it. I do it every day. So Clearly. do you have a, do you have a plan? I mean, I guess, are you waiting for like legal aspects of your situation to play them play out before you can make any kind of moves? Or are you going to stick or, you know, I think we, yeah. when we were talking either before we came on the air or in the earlier part of the conversation, you mentioned something about uh, feeling restless and potentially wanting to change location. I'm curious to know like how deeply you've thought about it, particularly in light of the, the stuff that we were talking about related to, these kind of intimate or deeper relationships that you have with friends and how important that is in terms of feeling a sense of connectivity. Like 
if you were to up and leave and suddenly move to Idaho or, you know, New York or something, like you might have to start all over again. Like, have you considered that? Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, a lot of the friends that I'm really close with don't live here. And so part of, I mean, I just talk to them on the phone or we, we FaceTime or whatever. So I'm getting as much of them as I can that way. I haven't thought about it a lot because I don't know what's going to happen, you know, because all my charges aren't resolved. So it's just a, a little idea of something So yeah, without, what, a, without a plan yet. What does this mean they aren't resolved? Like, does this mean you could potentially have to go back to prison? It could, yes. And what are the, char- what are the charges that are not resolved? The possession charges still. So um, hopefully they will be. And I probably would have known sooner, but now because of the shelter in place, everything's been pushed back. So, oh right, you got an attorney, uh, a public uh, appointed attorney. Yes. How's that working out? It's terrible. He doesn't even know my name. But um, you know, if it comes down to it, I'm going to hire one if I have to. Is He's there... always like, "And who are you again?" <laughs> it's very comforting. <laughs> When I show up, how many how many different like you know meth uh, addicts has he dealt with probably as a public thousands defender? I would <laughs> bet at any given time I think he probably has like four hundred pending cases. Oh my god, it's over. And it's is, insanity. Is, is there a, is there like a, a town attorney? Like, is there some guy you can hire like that you know of? Yeah, there's a couple. I went and talked to a couple of them. Yeah. but they were like, "Oh, just wait it out," which apparently is the thing that happens a lot of places. You know, they'll just keep resetting it because it's so expensive to go to trial that um, you might be able to demonstrate some rehabilitation before, you know, anything has to happen. I'm well, hoping that's the case. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, and, and you're you're doing it, you know, you're, you're living, yeah. you're sober, you're uh, rebuilding relationships. And hopefully you have people who in some kind of professional sense could vouch for the work that you've been doing, like at, at your treatment and at your group therapy, right? I mean, yes. Yeah, absolutely. That'll probably be crucial. You're right. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, it's been fun talking to you. Uh, are you listening to a lot of Dolly Parton these days? Is there anything that uh, we need to know about in terms like, did she, didn't she just put a new album out or? She did. I listened to a little bit, but mostly I've been listening to The Grass is Blue. It's one of her bluegrass albums for the past few weeks, and it's so beautiful, and the lyrics are really kind of magic so everyone should listen to that all right you heard it here ladies and gentlemen chris um really and truly uh congratulations on being sober uh stick with it i'm glad that you're well and uh and i don't know like especially as somebody who's lost somebody to addiction you know it sounds like you are, are, are aware of how many people care about you and um just stick with it yeah thank you it is easy to, it's easy to forget that whenever you're you're lost to it. But I appreciate that. I had a wonderful time. Thank you, Brad. Yeah. And are, are you working on another book? I mean, it sounds like you, you said you tried to write, but then you, you know, like, where are you? In terms I am. Of- yes, I am working on something. I've been working on it for a couple months now. It's very early. Any hints? Like, is it a novel? Is it a story? Do you not know? Um, I think it's, um, it's nonfiction. And I think that it's, um, I think it's about a crime that happened here in Saline County several decades ago. I won't say more than that. Okay. No, that's very good. That's a very good <laughs> leading cryptic It's a nonfiction answer. crime book. Uh, okay. I hope. We'll see uh, what happens. It's that's, so soon. It's very Truman Capote almost. I'm getting like 
like out in the middle of rural America. I've been thinking a lot about In Cold Blood, though. You're absolutely right. All right. Well, that Thanks is really uh, that's a good cliffhanger. I'll let I'll let us end there. Uh, really great to talk with you. Hang in there, uh, and I wish you all the best. Thank you. You too. Okay, that's Chris Dennis. Great conversation. His story collection is called Here Is What You Do, available from Soho Press. You can follow Chris on Twitter. His handle there is at ChrisDNNS. At ChrisDNNS. Right there on the Twitter. The story collection, again, is called Here Is What You Do. Go get your copy. If you would like to support this program, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Remember, the uh, Other People podcast is offered freely. Your support makes a difference. Don't forget the Other People podcast has its own official app. That, too, is free. Go get the app. It's a great way to listen. If you would like to write to me, if you have some thoughts that you would like to share, my email address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. Let me hear from you. So coming up on Wednesday, my conversation with Chelsea Beaker. I snuck in a Sunday episode here for you, but uh, Chelsea Beaker coming up on Wednesday. She has a novel out on Catapult Press called Godshot great time talking with Chelsea Beaker. I always have a good time. I feel like I do. I'm sincere in that. I'm not just telling you that. Some good ones in the pipeline, too. I don't think I've ever had more demand for, uh, like, booking demand for this show than since the, you know, the uh, pandemic started. I think once people realized I was doing uh, remote interviews again, Plus, everybody's just stuck in their house. They can't go on book tour. I feel like I should go camping or something with my kids, like get them out into nature. But I don't. I don't know. I don't have a tent anymore. The tent that I used when I was on the Appalachian Trail, I, I threw it away like four years ago. Like I dug it out of our storage and I like looked at it and I was just like, no, it was too old. No, you can't fit a family into that thing anyway. It's too, you know, all right. (laughs) 